1: What's that? Uh, taxi driver? Ah, yeah,
2: cool! And uh, showerhead, big knife. Is that psycho? Okay. Dancing lady. Are, are those wolves? Dances with wolves? They're gonna kind of look more like foxes or a hedgehog. Okay, what's this? Uh, a radio, another wolf slash fox, and lots of people. Radio Fox Group, Radio Wolf Bunch, Radio Wolfgang,
0: Radio Wolfgang emoji title, I love it, smiley love heart eyes, winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio With It, yeah, we're back on air, the cold's down, but we don't care,
2: we're mobile now, we're everywhere,
3: yeah, Radio
4: Today at the House of Lords, the Lord Chancellor announced the dissolution of Parliament. Great Britain is faced with a new general election.
3: You're joking. Not another one?
0: We could do a good intro there on uh, a Strong and Stable podcast for the many, not the few. It's Strong and Stable. For no, no, it's rubbish. It's for the Strong and Stable it, you podcast. It. You're better at it.
1: Welcome to the It's Nice That podcast with me, Alex Beck,
0: and me, Will Hudson.
1: It's Nice That is a website showcasing creative work from all around the world, looking at design to video, photography, and everything else in between. And I think that's the joy of It's Nice That. In this series, we're going to pick creative things that people like and experience, from emojis to public art, and work out why they're successful. So with one of the fastest ever scheduled elections right around the corner. This episode, we thought it only fitting to discuss political design.
0: Which, to be totally honest, we're not sure if it's a real thing, technically, political design. But we want to look at any kind of design with a political message at the heart of it.
1: It's such a broad topic, right? It's everything from the posters in your windows to uh, graphic design to logos of the candidates to campaigns to films to party broadcasts. It's an amazingly beautiful, broad topic and
0: we're excited to dive into it if not a little nervous. One of my big memories of engagement with political design was when it just used to be like big headshots, the name of the person of the party. And it was just like, they were so consistent, no matter what party it was. All around the streets would just be pictures of candidates, their headshot with their name and and the party in which they were trying to get elected for. Which I think is quite nice. I think keep it simple. Yeah, but you don't learn anything about them, do you? No, but you learn anything by seeing conservatives' strong, stable leadership. Does it make you go... All oh, right, right. Okay. Strong, stable leadership. Let's go. I'll, I'll have a bit of that. <laughs> that Saatchi
1: stuff is the stuff that, you know, when you, when I think about political design, I think about that long queue on the billboard to that unemployment line or whatever it was. It's like, I mean, that's a pretty powerful image, phenomenally powerful image. And whether you agree with the sentiment or not, it has kind of withstood the test of time because they used a parody of it for Brexit, didn't they? Um, so there have been some amazingly iconic images in political design but then equally when you look at the vast majority of it it's all pretty standard stuff isn't it i guess the, the other very famous case study was the obama O, and that you know that was seen to be a seminal piece of political design that then again led him to the white house and what i'm really interested in finding out in this podcast is does that actually make a difference with or without it would that guy have got into power and i don't think we're ever going to be able to prove that but what actually is the effect of those things can a logo get you elected?
0: I think the Obama riot stuff's interesting because I think Obama was a relatively unknown candidate at the time. So he, he wasn't kind of at the forefront for many years leading up to this thing. So I, I would like to think that design has played a much bigger role. But there's, there's also the logo and then there's the slogan. So can you remember the slogan for Obama in 2008?
1: No, but the thing I really remember is hope on that Shepherd Fairey poster. Yeah. So was it
0: hope? Uh, hope was not one of the big ones. There's yes, we can. And then also change. So change we can believe in.
1: Maybe this sounds crass, but that's not that different to the whole Make America Great Again stuff, is it?
0: Well, it's funny you say that, Alex. His thing of change in 2008, Bill Clinton, 1992, four people for a change. That was his slogan. And it's funny how these things, I've got, there's a a kind of great Wikipedia link of all the slogans used. And there's so much recurring themes. So 1976, Jimmy Carter's slogan, a leader for a change. One we used for a few years, let's get like that out. That. I like that Jimmy Carter one. My yeah. favourite one, 1972, popular anti-Nixon slogan, Dick Nixon before he dicks you. <laughs> um, like that. that has to come into the design of politics, right? The slogans. That's yeah, totally. fascinating. But 2004, John Kerry, so bearing in mind what Donald Trump's big kind of political slogan, which was make America great again, John Kerry's political campaign alternative slogan was let America be America again. And he was a Democrat nomination, but it's still fascinating that those recurring themes. And again, for me, it devalues a little bit. It's not like we're suddenly kind of revolutionising those slogans and the way in which we're talking about stuff. Can you tell me what the slogans for this year are and the logos? I can tell you that Theresa May is the strong, stable leadership one. You mean the Conservatives? uh, (laughs) Yes.
1: But it's funny, that's quite a good point because she is the lead on all of it, right? Whereas on the Labour side, they've decided that Corbyn isn't necessarily the front of it.
0: Having been in kind of the design process of as you kind of iterate and work through things and then pitch stuff, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Wherever that happens that they're going, for the many, not the few. And people going like, yeah, that's, let's get behind that one. I'd love to know what were the, what were the other alternatives that they would have put with that. Because again, the slogan, I can't believe there are that many people that read that slogan for the many, not the few, and go, well, oh, I couldn't buy into that. Like, well, again, it, I, go I back think to you'd that, be surprised, mate. Well, <laughs> well, we'll find out, won't we? I, d- I don't know. I think that's what's so interesting about political design. Because I've kind of battled with how to articulate it and talk about it. And I think the, the way in that I found was to relate it to something like football. So football, you grow up, in a family that kind of support a club and you buy into it you don't really question it you just go along with it and I think there's there's a similar thing with politics it's it's inherently you've grown up and I understand this isn't for everyone but you've grown up in an environment that will support a political party and therefore I think that starts to shape your views and like a football club it's very difficult to turn around when you're 18 and go oh you know that club that chatted about for the last 18 years, I'm actually off to support someone else. I think people's connotations and the way in which they support political parties is super interesting. And I'm I'm fascinated in this podcast to learn a little bit more about, can the design influence and change people's mind and opinion?
1: What I want to know is what goes into designing a candidate's campaign. So how do they approach it? How long do people get? Are there loads of laws around it? All that kind of stuff
0: is what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in the kind of the historical context of political design. I think I'm quite naive when it comes to thinking of those things that have come before. You're normally quite naive when it comes to things, isn't it? (laughs) Always. History. Just anything before yesterday.
1: (laughs) To be honest, I I can't talk. I feel the same. So with that, we're going to be speaking to the design mastermind behind Hillary Clinton's most recent political campaign, multi-award winning graphic designer Michael Beirut and learning about the history of political design from design critic, commentator and author Stephen Heller.
0: We're also going to be talking to CEO at creative agency Creature of London, Dan Shoot, about his work making political broadcasts for the Green Party, including the now viral Secret Lives of Five-Year-Old Politicians and the most recent Change the Game.
4: A man for president who's seasoned through and through But that's a doggone season that he won't try something new A man who's old enough to know And young enough to do Well, it's up to you, it's up to you It's strictly up to you Our next guest, Stephen Heller, is a design critic, journalist and author. I write about graphic design, political art, political satire, popular culture and I've written about 170 books or more. Including Iron Fists, branding the
1: 20th century fascist state.
4: I got into politics when I was very young. When I was 10 years old, I was in Washington DC with my uncle's fiancé who worked for Life magazine. And she got us tickets to go to Congress. And we went up to the congressional elevator, the elevator that the senators had specially for them. And uh, somebody said, Hold the elevator, came around the corner. And it was JFK and Lyndon Johnson. And it was before they were elected president and vice president.
3: He called me rash, improved, reckless, naive, and uninformed. But he called Lyndon an ignoramus. Do you think he's going to get out and work with him?
4: the way i became a political designer and a political design writer was that i became a designer and i wasn't comfortable with just designing corporate or business materials i wanted to do something that did have a message so i just became a propagandist early in my life the term political design is a little misleading. There's design that is used politically in different ways. It can be used as propaganda. It can be used as information and it can be used to convey a variety of messages. So when I talk about political design as a kind of shorthand, I'm usually thinking of message design, design that contains a particular viewpoint that needs to be communicated to a mass of people. Political design history has a a long heritage. You can go back to the days when 17th century proclamations would be put up on town squares and uh, they would be decrees from a ruler or someone in charge political design of the 19th century was text heavy uh, with a limited number of images simply because the technology didn't allow for a lot of imagery to be printed by the time the turn of the century rolls around and we're into the world war one era of the teens and later in the 20s Uh, more and more images were being produced to make a more immediate statement in concert with a word or a slogan. The Nazis, of course, created a body of work that was very effective in presenting their ultimately criminal point of view. You had... The swastika, you had the image of Hitler, and then there were a whole series of supplementary and ancillary imagery that came from the runic alphabet and other forms of heraldry. Peter Behrens, who was a very famous overall designer for the German electrical company, created a consistent form of uh, corporate identity, and the Nazis borrowed or stole that ethos of consistent identity from uh, their own industry. The swastika, which didn't belong to them, but belonged to the ages, as a symbol of fertility, of good luck, of more positive things, was adopted as an Aryan symbol and applied to the negative and exclusionary policies of what was becoming... uh, a Nazi party, which would later become a Nazi government. With that symbol in place and the colors defined red, black and white, Hitler defined them in his book Mein Kampf, it was constant and it became familiar and comfortable and at the same time frightening for those who were its enemies. For me, one of the most powerful political images is the My Lai poster. It was a photograph that a uh, photographer happened to take right after the massacre at My Lai in Vietnam. And somebody got hold of one of the pictures and in typewriter type put on the top, and babies question mark, and at the bottom, and babies exclamation point. And that was an ad hoc thing. That was not designed, it was not planned, it was done by the seat of whoever did its pants. Uh, It was done from scratch. Over the last hundred years, the political poster or the political image hasn't changed all that much except stylistically. And of course today it's easy just to do anything on a computer and print it out. The computer now just makes it possible to take imagery from all different sources and combine it together with other imagery and make things that are sometimes pastiche, sometimes original, sometimes parody of older things. Uh, it also allows more access by a larger number of groups with political agenda. I think that more and more people will try to figure out different ways of getting under the skin, if not changing the minds of people in the opposition. Something I'm working on now with a few people is uh, an amusement park that will satirise the administration's various faux pas. Will that be an effective tool of propaganda or just a satisfying palliative? I don't know. What do you reckon of
0: Stephen? Heavyweight. I think it needed a bit of that, didn't (laughs) it? It needed someone that's actually been there, done it and knows what they're talking about. Thank God, someone who actually (laughs) knows about political design. eh? I think the historical context helps... Loads. I think things like talking about the Nazi party, I think it's a really good example of kind of strong brand, but obviously now for everything that they did. I was most interested in what he spoke
1: about in this idea of message design. So forget that it's political. I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it, that essentially you're just conveying a certain message like loads of other things. But um, it's interesting to hear him say that actually it's always been reasonably similar from posters up in a town centre right through to now, just stylistically it's changed. But, you know, the idea and the purpose is reasonably similar. It makes me think how different the recent campaigns with social media have actually been and what a huge, huge, huge change that is. Imagine the Nazis on social media, how powerful that kind of message would have been there. Yikes. <laughs>
3: <Couldn't> <laughs> the you producers, say that? the producers,
0: producer's looking at me through the window going, no, no, no. But I'm interested to ask Michael now about how much can you actually push it? Like, does this stuff just exist within a comfort zone? That Actually, if you went and did something totally different, do you risk the current support of that party being like, well, hang on, this isn't familiar and this isn't...
1: Definitely. Are these
0: things going to have to take years to evolve? I think that's the big challenge is the
1: demographic, is the audience. Is you're speaking to an 18-year-old and you're speaking to an 80-year-old about things that essentially they're going to have polarizing opinions on certain policies no matter what you do, right? Yeah. So you have to find some kind of common ground in the middle that speaks to both
3: these people because you're still trying to get both the vote. Our next
0: guest is the graphic designer responsible for Hillary Clinton's H logo.
3: Um, My name is Michael Beirut. He's a partner at design consultancy Pentagram. He's based in New York. i became a partner in 1990, been here for 27 years. Welcome, Michael. Hello. Great to talk to you.
1: Obviously, today we're talking about political design, of which I'm sure you have lots of opinions, having just recently done the Hillary Clinton logo campaign. So we want to ask, first and foremost, where, where did that job come from? How did it How did it come about?
3: Back at the beginning of 2015, before Secretary... Clinton had actually declared that she was running for president, I got a call from someone on her team who wanted to come in and just uh, talk in general about like political graphics and logos. And then they were basically just interviewing to see whether I would be the right person to volunteer to undertake this job. It was an unpaid position. It was done in complete secrecy. Me and two other people at Pentagram, one of my designers, uh, Jesse Reed, and one of my project managers, Julia Lemley. Uh, basically uh, worked on it for two months in isolation behind closed doors. And towards the end of it, we were convening meetings with probably 12 people with uh, paper over the windows. We had a code name for it that wow. uh, that's, that seemed to have... You know, I think it was, I, I think, um, it was just this assumption that I work on boring jobs all the time. So all this cloak and dagger stuff I love was more for our own amusement than anything else. There wasn't that much of a... Um, uh, no one seemed to be that curious about what I was doing. <laughs> and I have to admit, my partners were completely surprised surprise when I told them the day before uh, Hillary Clinton officially announced that I had been working on this project so and and tell us a little bit more
0: about that process. How does the sign off process and the who 's actually involved from hillary clinton 's end to actually agree to the direction that you 're going in at, at what point is she actually brought into these conversations to say this is the logo that 's going to accompany your campaign
3: um, well, first of all, you know the idea of designing logos, specifically logos and kind of coherent, coordinated graphic identities for political campaigns is a fairly new one. I would almost venture to say that Barack Obama introduced the idea in 2008, and before then, politicians would hire ad agencies. Ad agencies would sometimes come up with a consistent way of writing the candidate's name. But often not. And then different people would make things along the way, like buttons, banners, and signs for political rallies and conventions and things. The idea of having them all kind of conforming to a central idea really started with Barack Obama's campaign then in '8. And so having you know a logo and a graphic program around it seemed like it was necessary. And so I started out with a meeting of just two people. There was a series of meetings that had the names of a lot of people who I got to be familiar with in the coming months from the pages of The New York Times, um, but who played different roles in the campaign. And then once we had three kind of plausible directions and one favorite, we had a meeting and a presentation with Hillary Clinton that was also attended by um, Bill Clinton and Chelsea and a bunch of big Big bunch of intimidating people. And that was really a lot of fun. It was it was a really great presentation. She is a really, really, really good client.
1: I mean, this is probably cheeky. You don't have to answer this. But what were the routes that didn't make it? Because the final one, obviously, is the H with the arrow pointing to the right that we all know very well. Um, can you give us any insight into what didn't make it?
3: I think at the very outset, we everyone sort of decided it would be Hillary rather than Clinton, which was kind of confusing, or HRC, which is her initials, including her middle name Rodham, which didn't seem to be, you know, much of a, uh, you know, it wasn't. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's people don't call her that, so Hillary seemed to be the best way to start, um, and so we had uh, some directions that actually were quite nice that used the whole word mark, and those, of course, have the disadvantage in these days of not being. sometimes not being easily reducible to the kinds of really small and more or less square applications you need for things like social media, with you know, the kind of icons and avatars that accompany, you know, Twitter and Instagram and uh, Facebook and stuff like that. So we we did um, a number of word marks. We did, we, we did something just to demonstrate a sort of non-starter, which is to do like an abstract logo that, you know, was sort of the equivalent of, it didn't look like the Nike swoosh, but sort of the same kind of thing. Like here is an abstract symbol that will associate with your name that eventually people will come to see as your name, right? And in the end, what we did was um, sort of a combination of those two things, sort of a stylized treatment of the first initial in her name. I remember I started getting into this real tangent where I started saying, I just want something that is like a smiley face or a peace sign. I want something where a, you know, a five-year-old can draw it with a crayon. I don't want to have something where you need to have software and understand Illustrator and Photoshop to do it. The, the Obama logo is actually quite complex. You, I mean, you can't actually draw it accurately at home. You know, what I, what I always found pleasing about the Hillary H arrow combination was I could describe it to someone over the phone and they could more or less draw it based on a series of simple instructions, which was what I was going for.
0: One of the things we've talked about previously is this: the the demographic that you're trying to talk to is huge. I can't think of many brands that try and talk to as wide a spectrum of people. When you boil it down, what is the role of that logo?
3: Um, I think the role is very simple and it's easy to over inflate it. So even when I, in most of my meetings, whenever I meet new people with the campaign up to including the candidate, I would always start with a caveat, saying people do not vote for logos. I can't say that these things are that important. You're, you know, the message is important, the way that people connect with the candidates is important. The logo itself doesn't make that much difference. But the function that a logo plays in a modern political campaign is to provide a focal point or a or a uh, a reliable sort of signature. A peg on which you can hang a lot of different messages, right? And so it's, um, you know, I, I sort of was always a little bit dubious about about people trying to interpret things from the logo in and of itself. I just thought if the message is good and, and everything else is hanging together, that logo will start to look good to people because they like the candidate it stands for. And I think that's true with you know, it's true with most of the products and organizations that we know, right? And what we were trying to do with the um, Hillary for America logo was come up with something that would be much more open-ended in a way. So the simplicity of it was meant to enable what eventually did happen, which was, um, you know, lots and lots of people kind of modifying it for themselves, coloring it in, putting different pictures in it, turning it into different things. If you decide you want to change the logo for a holiday, or you want to change the logo to support a certain cause on one day, you can just press a few buttons and it's on all your channels. It'll change over to have, say, uh, the LGBT pride rainbow stripes in it, or you can celebrate, you know, a national holiday, or you can do all sorts of different things. And so I think we were trying to do something that felt kind of both familiar and surprising. And because, you know, there is no real demographic, it's sort of the demographic is sort of everyone.
1: Uh, Is there anything, I mean, when you think about um, creativity and design and politics, is there anything that really stands out as fantastic work that you think has been done um, historically or more recently?
3: Historically, it was funny. When we went back and kind of looked at what had been done, you sort of like have the example of Obama, which was just sort of remarkable because it introduced sort of the discipline of corporate branding to the world of politics. How much do you kind of
0: put down to Obama's win in 2008 to the design?
3: Oh, um, Oh, as a graphic designer, I think in, it's entirely to do with the design. <laughs> I think most, most commentators would think what, what, what design. Um, but I actually think his design was doing something very, very specific and very strategic. You know, I, I, I gather that he was not directly involved with it because it wasn't – I think some guys were – So smart guys were working on a website that would support his bid to be president in the earliest days when he was the longest of long shots. And they in turn said, well, we really need some sort of like graphic thing to go on the website. And they commissioned uh, a design team to come up with some things. I think his campaign people approved the thing that we now know. And what I've heard is that it was shown to him and he said, wow, that looks really corporate you know, he, he was right in a way. And I think he, uh, Obama at that moment in, uh, in 2008 probably had a vision of himself as a, you know, as a young, you know, maverick and a disruptor and someone whose roots were in community organizing at the grassroots level. And here was his advisors kind of showing him something that looked like it could be a, uh, you know, a logo for a Silicon Valley startup or for a you know, a new line of healthy breakfast cereals or something, you know, I mean, it's, it's like really hyper, hyper polished, right? And um, when I, you know, it sounds like the rationale was, look, you've got to, you know, you're really unfamiliar. And what this, you know, what this graph, what your graphics have to do is assure people that you're, hyper-competent, really buttoned down, and really kind of seasoned and sophisticated, right? And so it's a classic thing where, um, you know, uh, it's been said that design has two potential roles, you know, and we, we kind of toggle between the two of them. It's to make the uh, unfamiliar seem comfortable, and it's to make the familiar seem surprising, right? And I think in the case of, uh, of Obama's work, it was about making him just sort of seem more, you know, just kind of like a, um, uh, you know, hyper-competent. I mean, I just, I think people could tell in looking at that campaign that, um, you know, at his, you know, uh, political rallies, everyone's holding up signs and they're all in, you know, the same typeface. They're all in Gotham. They're all completely coordinated. You know, that, you know, there's some, even in a very subliminal level, there's some way you look at that and you think, you know, this guy's really got it all together. And uh, um, surely if he can, you know, you get all the typography all lined up properly, you know, you'll be able to get peace in the Middle East and solve global warming as well.
4: You know,
3: that turns out not to quite be so true, but, um, uh, typography, that's why I'm a graphic designer instead of a politician. I just do the easy problems. Do you think we'd even remember that Obama
1: logo if he hadn't won? Do you think we'd even be talking about it? No, no. That's,
3: and that's, and that's of course is, uh, is, is what happens as well. Right. I think that, um, uh, if you win, then, um, Everything that's led up to that victory is recast as a a series of genius moves that, uh, um, you know, know, would never be second guessed but instead would just be admired, emulated and would set a standard for all future such activity, um, you know, uh, by others who would also want victory.
1: And Michael, we've probably got one more minute, but I have to ask you, do you think you could ever work on this kind of work without supporting the candidate? Could you have done this work for Trump?
3: Oh, no, 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 absolutely not. No, I, I mean I I can barely design a book if I'm not interested in the subject matter and sort of like to actually you know to actually you know have to I, no I I mean the, what motivated us entirely was our enthusiasm about the candidate which did nothing but increase over the course of the campaign right. um, mm-hmm. and I, I I think it would be really hard to. Well, I mean, it just wouldn't be any fun at all to do it if you didn't have that sense of identification.
1: Michael, thank you so much. That was thank you. some amazing depth, some brilliant insight. And um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Guys, yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. What a great insight. Absolutely fascinating. I like, i tell you what I was most surprised about is that it's obviously a very serious graphic designer, very talented, amazing reputation. doesn't think it designs the most important thing in those campaigns. I think that's really refreshing because obviously it isn't, but it does have a role to play. But it's nice to hear from someone who is so lauded and is such a champion for design speak really pragmatically about actually it's most matters if you win and actually it's about the messages and it's about the actual campaign rather than the logo. I thought that was refreshing. And the candidate,
0: right? Yeah. So so he, he yeah, first and foremost it is about the candidate, mm. which I think is so obvious. And obviously design, like with loads of other things, it's like if you were to design great branding for a product that was useless, it's yeah. not going to make people use the product. It might yeah. make them kind of more memorable or kind of identify similar messages around it. But ultimately, you've got to have a good candidate in the first place. And that's what's going to win an election.
1: Yeah, people don't vote for logos. I thought it was just such a nice little insight.
0: I also thought it was great that he checked about the Obama campaign and referred to it as kind of a Silicon Valley startup. I don't think I'd quite made that connotation, but actually re visiting it now and looking at it, you do kind of go, yeah, it could be It could be that. Or like you said, breakfast cereal. It's There is a certain kind of polish to that logo. But isn't that interesting in the context? Because
1: the thing that they obviously thought about was going to stop Obama was his underdog status and that he wasn't polished and he was a young upstart. The idea of then doing something a bit more formal. You can kind of, with that analogy, see why everything is so formal. Because so much of it's about trust. And actually, although it might be bland what we're seeing in front of us, You kind of trust that the message is real. You don't think that, oh, I don't really believe that they're going to cut the deficit or sort out immigration or anything else, just because it is so plain and simple. So maybe that's a real key to it.
2: Now, a party election broadcast by the Labour Party. If you'd said to me, in sort of 18, 19, you're going to be a politician. I would have said, I get it. (laughs) Anything else, anything but being a politician.
3: Why, on what grounds, why? Because
2: I thought politicians were complete pains in the backside. Okay? And there is a part of you that constantly wonders whether it is worth staying in politics because of all the, the, the rubbish that you have to do. I mean, you, you just have to do it. You've just got to keep a grip of yourself and, and hope that your humanity sees you through and, and in the end understand why you want to be in it. What I keep saying to people is get behind the image. It's quite difficult to bring people to actually see the type of person you are. My ambition when I was a child was to play football for Newcastle United. That was my greatest ambition. I kept trying to talk my dad into using whatever meagre influence he had with Newcastle United to get me a trial. He never did.
1: So anyway, we've got a good idea of the history of political design. We've spoken a lot about graphic design. um, But there's also loads more to talk about. That snap election has mean lots of broadcasts and other bits of
0: communications have also had to be made. Our next guest is CEO and founder of creative agency Creature of London. I'm Dan Shute, I'm the proud Welshman, and my mum still doesn't really understand what my job is. He knows only too well the challenges of creating political broadcasts to a tight deadline, having just released the Green Party's current general election broadcast, Change the Game. Dan Shute, welcome to the studio. Hello, lovely to be here. So, 18th of April... Yep. Snap election right? gets called. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know you've got the gig or
2: you wait for that call because there's 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 a strong assumption with the Green Party. So I've been working with the Green Party on and off for about uh six or seven years now. And so when I set up Creature with the other guys, it was one of the pieces of business that came across. I mean it's not the most commercial piece of business, but it's their they're a client that you know you you work with because you believe in them and care about them and frankly, you get the chance to do amazing things with them. So yeah, I was actually, I was on holiday on April the 18th. I was in Whitby with my partner. We were away for her 40th and, um, Suddenly, my phone started buzzing, and it was first just the the Guardian and the BBC alert saying that dear Theresa had had called the election, and then yeah, shortly after that, texts started coming in from the guys back at the agency, going right, what happens? Do we call them? Do we call them? Do we wait for them to call us? And at that point, you do you give them a bit of space because you know, much as we might like to think it, they have other things going on than than the telly spot. The following Thursday, um, we were, uh, yeah, across at Portcullis House, talking to to Caroline and Jonathan, um. Uh, and their comms team about what the hell they were going to do and it, it's one of the joys of working with the green party is you know you work with a lot of clients and the brief is you know this is what we stand for this is what we want to do these are the key messages and this is what we want to convey whereas with the green party our brief has always been essentially how do we do comms as differently as they try to do politics um, and certainly you know their focus for a, a party with drastically smaller budgets and drastically less resource than than the guys they're going up against our briefs always been about how do we create something that people want to see rather than we will force upon them um so you know traditionally election broadcasts are tv focused, whereas we very much start with the internet and then just sort of enjoy the ridiculous fact that it goes on telly sometimes
0: just to put the the most recent piece of work into context yeah. snap election 50 days you're waiting a week until you even get briefed to kind of get on with it. How does that compare to previous elections when obviously a May election is what everyone's expecting? How, how long do you work on a piece there?
2: Uh, hugely different. Um, so for last year for the, um, the, the London elections, um, we first met up with the Green Party to discuss it in November 2015 um and kind of kicked off the process in january and the broadcast was on air in april um so kind of a, a five month thing i mean this time around was was insane we 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 as an agency we pride ourselves on being nimble and flexible and quick and we you know we've turned around stuff in four weeks before we found out sitting in portcullis house with with Jonathan and jonathan our comms team when their first broadcast date was and that it was two weeks hence and and i'll be you know p- part of my job um is projecting confidence and certainty when there is none um but i struggled at that point so i, was, I you know i I don't know what we do. I do, you know. I, I what, what you write, what you, We don't know what really what the brief is yet. We've got to go away and work that out, then write something, then get that approved. So Dan, for those listeners who haven't seen Change the Game, um, can you just describe it for them? Yeah, it's it, it's set up as an advert for a board game called um, The Race to Number Ten, uh, Snap Election Edition, um, the game that nobody wanted but we're all being forced to play. The game no one wants to play is back. The race to number ten. Snap election edition. It's a um, homage to the board game ads of our youth, variously described as, as 50s, 70s, 80s or 90s by, by online commentators. We were thinking 80s, but I think that's just because that was our youth. We're
0: taking the blue
2: side. And we're taking the reds. Hooray! OK, spin your way to power. It's a family gathered around a, a table post-dinner with a, a Grandmother, initially two kids and a mum and dad. One of the kids is is quickly packed off because she's only seventeen, so this game's not for her. And then, yeah, it's all about lying and cheating your your way to the top. It's it's a <laughs> playful poke at the politics that the leading parties of our country um, tend to indulge in, with yeah nods to lies on buses and nods to soundbite politics and and nods to everything else with a healthy sprinkle of surrealism and weirdness on top of it
1: to total privatization do not release funding (laughs) i was going to ask you what is success for that
2: piece of work is it views is it votes (laughs) so there's there's there is a fundamental um success metric um which is around around the election itself you know that that's what we're doing here we're we're looking to get caroline re-elected in brighton pavilion or Back in the day, looking to get Caroline elected for the first time. And then looking to add other MPs. A key element of the conversation with them is always, I guess, managing expectations of what an election broadcast can achieve. The majority of people don't vote based on party manifestos, let alone on the the three minutes of of telly that they have to see about them. (laughs) So success for that element of the campaign has always been about achieving sort of a level of impact and engagement and chat ultimately that they had no right to expect given their sort of proportionate size and spend of making people think differently about them there's there's a persistent challenge with the green party um around perceptions of them as a single issue party whereas actually they have a you know a whole heap of policies that people buy into and care about when they hear them they just never notice them because they're coming from the green party and so fundamentally the first barrier that our broadcast has to get over is is making people want to watch it um and you know people don't want to watch party election broadcasts and why would they they're dull and they're earnest and they're monotone and and they're preachy and they're all the fucking same and starting with a brief of yeah making something that people actually want to talk about and will want to watch is really exciting for any kind of creative company whether it whatever medium you're working in and then you know particularly last year with the um the secret life of five-year-olds watching people go nuts for it, is is amazing. Yeah, The Secret Life of Five-Year-Olds was the big hit.
4: It's just another day in the world of British politics. Boris is on his way to lobby support from the Blue Gang.
2: We had, we had lots of different ideas that we were throwing around at that point. So this was for the London mayoral elections and the local elections. So you had Sean Berry going up against um, Zach and Sadiq uh, and whoever the guy from UKIP uh, was. Oh, the, the woman from the Lib Dems. I can't, literally can't remember it was it was all really kind of nasty but also kind of just childish
1: in the nursery jeremy is asserting his
2: leadership i'd just had a little boy so i was watching quite a lot of telly with kids in it and crying which is you know what you do when you have kids and so we started talking about secret life of four-year-olds and actually originally we talking about you know the, the thing that jimmy carr does on the big fat quiz of the whatever where he gets the school kids to and we were like it, it's just funny right if kids do Politics. Especially
1: because they're half lookalikes. That's what I like the most. <laughs> it's it's so sort of tri- tributes, yeah, I think crazy. we think of them
2: as.
3: My mum would say, put a suit, do up a tie, and sing the national anthem.
0: <laughs> working, working so closely now with a political party, what do you... Either reference politically from kind of historical, whether it be from the UK or the US or elsewhere. What are those things that you kind of go, yes, this is this is people that have done it well previously? I think that, well,
2: there's two answers to that. It, it just to answer the last, the second point in terms of who's who's done it well, I think you know we all know the the famous ads. Um, Labour isn't working attack ads they're all attack ads as a general rule that the demonized poster the william Hague with the thatcher head on etc cetera, etc cetera. we try not to reference any of that stuff because i i think political advertising traditionally when it's worked really well a has either come from the tories or labor because you know whilst we don't officially have a, a bi party system you, you kind of do you know you've got the main party you've got the opposition and then you've got the rest of them which is why the sort of trend towards i think a Presidential style election is is becoming more and more commonplace every day. Where it's you know we're talking May versus Corbyn now. It's, it's not about Labour Tories anymore, but it also means that the most effective advertising is just one of those kicking the other. And I think you you saw it in two thousand fifteen, where I loved our broadcast, and 500 six hundred thousand people saw our broadcast, and and one point two million people voted for the Green Party. But the most effective piece of advertising was a poster of Alex Salmon with Ed Miliband in his top pocket, because in in one visual they they crystallised the the fear of of Middle England that that none of them have quite managed to put into words the idea of being beholden to these you know as they saw them lunatic nationalists liberals north of the border who live a life that they don't understand and that was like oh that that will do and you combine that with Ed's inability to eat a bacon sandwich and the poor fucker never stood a chance the game we're trying to play with the green party because of what they're doing is slightly different you know that broadcast isn't on the ground in brighton it's not going door to door it's not taking on specific policies that that matter to, to the residents of brighton pavilion um it is making the country sit up and take notice of a party that they would previously have happily ignored and it's part of a long game to be honest uh, and you know what we've seen with the green party votes aside is is ludicrous growth in terms of membership like they are after the labor party they're the, the biggest political party now in terms of members i think i'm right in saying which is which is kind of although the, the lib dem brexit thing may have changed that last time i looked that was true and that's that's mental and i think what you touched on it earlier a lot of those people are younger than they ever would have been and that's that's what we're trying to do i think and that's why we we sort of it's it's difficult to reference other stuff because it's it's a job that nobody's really tried to do before
0: looking ahead though do you think the work that you're doing for the green party is going to influence potentially some of those kind of the two leading uh political parties to actually be braver or does the work that you do sit because of where the green party sits and therefore and i guess there's another kind of question which is if If the work is super successful and and we see that vote grow and grow and grow, do you reach a tipping point that they actually go, we can't do this kind of work anymore, it now needs to change and alter?
2: I think it it depends on how you categorise the sort of work that we're we're doing. Um, Because do I think that the Labour Party would ever kind of give over their election broadcast to make five minutes of, of kids messing around instinctively i say no although they it's not like they haven't tried to be to be funny a couple of years ago they made a a, a, a nick clegg attack broadcast essentially it was a thing called the incredible shrinking man um in 2015 and it was nick clegg sitting in the cabinet room with a bunch of tory lookalikes um getting gradually smaller and higher pitched and, and all the rest of it and it was it was just mean i think it was and what, we try never to be mean spirited but i think in terms of what we're trying to achieve with those broadcasts, which is taking what we see as a massive opportunity, you know, three three minutes of, of airtime on a terrestrial channel at prime time and filling it with stuff that people actually want to watch. So rather than, I, I think, you know, it, it's, again, it's a, it's a truism in advertising, but it's 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 a fundamental truism in, in politics is that politics often forget to think about what real people actually want. And I think we, with our broadcasts, have always tried to make stuff that, real people will give a shit about and then flow our message into that and i think so in, t- in terms of a general approach do i think that other political parties could benefit from listening to real people a little bit and thinking about real people a little bit yeah that it seems slightly insane but
1: it might happen with with that dan what if um another party was to come to you and go hey we love what you've done there we want to be a bit more edgy do you fancy it <laughs> um could you ever could you
2: ever um cheat on the do, green it, do party? it for someone else uh, you, you never say never i can i could list a couple of parties that i would never say anything other than no to um i think that the short answer is i would find it very hard to work with anybody that wasn't the green party but equally i would find it very hard not to be excited by the challenge um and i, th- I think you know the reality is there are parties with with more resources and and bigger problems actually and just the professional stroke masochist in me is quite would be quite excited about taking that stuff on but also I, it, would, it would be weird you're a real politician <laughs> <laughs>
4: you've learned so much it's, it's really hard to switch it off well
2: thanks so much it's, what a
4: brilliant insight
1: I'm very envious actually I'd love to do something like that the challenge just seems so
2: you guys can have pure. the next one <laughs> I mean I've got their numbers if anyone is listening
1: it's fascinating you can make a TV ad that I think is that successful in two weeks. That's really impressive, I think but also it mimics a load of the things we've been talking about the whole time that you actually have to believe in that cause almost more than any other commercial brand that is so 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 super clear. But I do think from a creative agency point of view, despite the you know it's obviously an investment for them um in time and in financials as well. but it's a bit of an open goal, the idea that you've got a brief which is, Try and talk differently to everything else that's out there. What a great starting point for a creative execution. It's such a nice place to start, I think, that they're the perfect kind of people to really nail that. And I said this to Dan when we all took our headphones off so I didn't get found out, but I'll just say it now. that I hadn't seen the kids' video before this week, having looked at it, and it's exactly what I was looking for, that completely refreshing different satirical take on all this gump that we see day in day out all this arguing all this banter all these supposed lies everything else it's just such a refreshing take on it and i have to say although whether i vote for the green party or not will be between me and the ballot box i i do have a completely renewed respect for them for sure for even doing that
0: work i i wrote down i really hope it has impact and not through any kind of support of the green party but I think the work they're doing, there's a real chance that it can do that thing that I'm so desperate to see, which is that design and a creative execution of something can have an impact and can raise awareness and get more people to support something. And again, I think if it does have that impact, maybe you will see a few more parties take design more seriously and invest in it more because they can see the value of it and the benefits of it. Now follows a party political broadcast on behalf of the Conservative Party. Do you understand why the economy is in a mess? Who, me? Yes, you. No, I don't. But it's certainly not my fault. Well, that's where you're wrong. (laughs) Take your clothes off. (laughs) What, now? Yes, now. And go into the bathroom. What's this got to do with the economy? Do as you're told. (laughs) Ah. I see. You mean the amount of money in the economy is like the amount of water in a bar? That's right. And who was it who spent money like water in the first place? The Labour Party? Correct.
4: <laughs>
1: so, well, what a, what a great afternoon talking about politics. It's been a really good one. Have you Love learnt, politics. You said you wanted to hear about the process and understand. Do you feel like you understand the process of making something creative for a political party now?
0: Yes. I think through Michael's insight of the, the Hillary logo and the kind of everything from the, the actual process of getting briefed working secrecy I, th- I think he gave great insight as did dan i think i think the idea of making what they've made in two two weeks is phenomenal and the history of it i feel is so rich
1: i feel like we only just scratched the surface of that with Stephen. i'd love to look more into that but for me the fact that it was seventeenth century people putting posters in town squares and essentially for I mean it's changing a lot now with social media and everything else that we've heard and the targeting and T V ads, but essentially we're talking about the same thing, which is conveying a message simply about some beliefs. So I think that's that's exciting. I'd love to look at more successful political campaigns, I think.
0: Also I think we've done quite well not to talk about politics per se. And I think I'd I had the back us to have not have said um, Brexit, Trump, fake news, any of those kind of cliches, too much. I uh, hope. <laughs> well, well, well done. We'll, <laughs> we'll wait until the edit. Does that
1: mean we just didn't talk about anything we were supposed to?
0: I wanted to know if a logo
1: could get you elected and I'm certain it can't now. There's absolutely no way that any communication about your party is the only thing that's gonna make you decide. It's an important factor. But anyone getting swayed by the logo or the T V ad, maybe they need to look slightly harder at the politics.
0: I think it can enhance it. But essentially, if you've got a party that doesn't stand for the things that you want to believe in or an individual that you believe will fulfil those things, you've got to have that to begin with. But I I do believe, having heard from the the people that we've heard from, that design can accentuate that and can make it better and can can do a lot to help that candidate and that party.
1: Look at that. In in under an hour, we've sorted out the, the design of politics. This episode of the It's Nice That podcast was brought to you by It's Nice That and the team at Radio Wolfgang. It featured me, Alex Beck, and Will Hudson, talking to Michael Beirut and Dan Shute, as well as an insert from Stephen Heller. The executive producer was Harry Watson, and the producers were Ivor Manley and El Scott.
0: Clintons, me the Clintons. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) you know you're going to get done.